Welcome to the Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Ad Shamit Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about Passover. When we spoke last, we talked about the power of sacrifice. And we talked about the fact that sacrifice seems distant from us from an aesthetic point of view. And we also thought about the role of the priest in consuming the sacrifice on God's behalf, which leads to the whole notion of um, sacraments and Christianity and, and, and the power of that idea of allowing the sacrifice to become part of you. But I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to show and to really discuss how this applies to Passover. What we forget about is that the entire day is focused on the Pesach offering, goat or lamb that was offered, the blood who was put on the doorposts of the houses of the Israelites. And if you look in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, which records the commandments for the first Seder, it's all about the Pesach. It's all about that offering. And we don't do that offering today because we don't have a temple to ritually slaughter the animal in that place of holiness. So we no longer have the Pesach. But I don't want to lose the idea of the power of that moment. So can you imagine, you know, think about this, um, making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem with your family. Purchase, say, if you came from out of the country, you would purchase a lamb with the gates of the um, temple, and then you would bring that lamb to the priest, and the priest would uh, ritually slaughter the lamb. You would take that slaughtered animal, and you would take it into the hills of Jerusalem, and there you and your family would sort of put the lamb on a spit. You would roast it on a fire. And how does that sound to you? Well, I'm just wondering, as an alternative, could I stay home and write a check? <laughs> that is such a modern Jewish idea. That <laughs> <laughs> was breathtaking in its own way. That was a response I wasn't expecting. I've got to tell you right now. Well, that's what struck me is that this is a real call to action, and it's demanding something of you. It's demanding that you put your feet, your, your shoes on, and you go down, and you buy the animal, and you take it to slaughter. So, you know, it's, it's a real commitment, and I think maybe that's the point, that – uh, they didn't have Venmo, and uh, you couldn't just write a check at the time. Well, I, I think it's more than that. The fact is, is that if you, if if we were living in the ancient world, we're not going to be living in Chicago. We could be living in Alexandria. We could be living somewhere in Syria, right? Because there were, had already been one expulsion. So Jews are living around the world, but they have to show up in person in Israel as a way of acknowledging that the that God fulfilled God's promise to give us this land. And so we would be called upon to show up there, right? It's not you can't you can't phone it in, you can't send a check. You've got to be there. And uh one of the things that we might lose in the translation is that it's the one time of the year when every Israelite, every Jew is considered to be a Kohen, right? Because we're the ones eating the sacrifice. In the temple, the only ones 
who would eat the sacrifice were the priests, but uh, but on Pesach, we all benefited from God's hand in history. And we had to make this statement with this Paschal lamb. We had to take the animal that the Egyptians worshipped or revered, and we had to sacrifice that publicly, and we actually put the blood of that animal on our doorpost. We had to create a separation. And then that night, we roasted the lamb outside publicly, and we told the story of going out from Egypt, but we were ingesting the, in, in a sense, the vehicle for our salvation, right? Without the blood on the doorpost, we would have, we would have died. So we had to make that separation. And so writing a check doesn't quite do it. Yeah, and I think one of the things that strikes me about Pesach is that it, it is perhaps the most participatory of all of our holidays and that it's, you know, it, it demands a lot of us, not just um, spiritually, but physically as well. There's just a lot of rituals that you have to go through. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong in saying that that seems like it's more than some of the other holidays. Uh, but it also strikes me as something that's really necessary for causes, for social action, for making change, you know, for for taking people out of slavery, um, you have to get the people moving. Uh, you can't just talk to them. You have to get them actively involved or else, you know, they, they're just going to sit there and nod their heads, uh, but they're not going to follow you. And we see that today with activism, you know, where, you know, so much of our activism today takes place on social media without actually putting on your boots and marching or, you know, raising a sign and protesting. And I think that has an effect on the on the impact. There's no question about that. I just, I don't want to make the jump to freedom unless we also talk a little bit about the rituals that you raised, because all of the rituals of Pesach are a reminder to every person sitting down at the table that whoever's sitting at the table and whatever ta- whatever Pesach Seder's going on down the street or in your building or wherever it's taking place, we're telling the same story. In other words, it is a evening of national identity. We take the time to tell our story so that we can identify and say, this is our story, and this is our story of freedom. And before we can kind of take it out beyond ourselves, how do we understand the fact that we are still here and we are part of that ritual? In a sense, I think Pesach is the most important ritual to reinforce Jewish identity that we have. It's the most important one. And if you think about your children, this will be a, you know, if you ask Jews, what is their most positive Jewish memory? Most people will say the Pesach Seder. But something else is happening there that reinforces Jewish identity more effectively than almost anything. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, they say that when you're teaching kids, you want them to uh, engage with all the senses. You want them to hear something and say something, um, feel something, right? And the Seder does that really well. It gets us into it in a really uh, visceral way. I want to build on that and say that even though we don't have the lamb at our Seder table, even though we have or not in Israel sacrificing the animal and then sitting in the hills of Jerusalem telling the story within the earshot of other people telling the story, the fact is we're ingesting the story a different way. We're doing it verbally through singing songs, through talking about the plagues and going through the ritual of taking a little drop of the wine out of our glass as we think about the suffering of the Egyptians. 
this is kind of a remarkable thing that's taking place um, at our Seder tables. And it is probably the most important Jewish classroom that was ever invented in our, in our people's history. Yeah, I think that's right. And nothing um, passes down our traditions better than that because it's taking place in the home as well as in the synagogue. It's a family ritual. Um, it has room for interpretation. Each family does it a little differently. It's really, you know, um, it's, it's a, a miraculous thing. But I want to raise something with you that I don't think we talk about enough. The Haggadah does not focus on Jewish suffering. It mentions it. It's what it's really focused on is the miraculous nature of the story. God is this, the hero of the story. God takes us out of Egypt. Moses' name is only mentioned kind of peripherally in a psalm. Moses, you would think, might have been the hero, but it's actually the sweep of history. Here we are. You know, we are the recipients of that history. And I want to suggest that that's what we're ingesting. And if we're ingesting that story, then what does it call upon us to do? How do we act on that story? I think that's why Jews are on the front lines of so many important causes, not just for Jewish freedom, not just for the benefit of the Jewish people, but for people around the world, that this lesson is the one that's being taught most effectively to Jews. That's a really interesting point, and I agree with you. I think that it's um, the, the, the fact that it's not so specific to Moses gives it a sort of universality and that it um, allows us to connect with other people who have experienced or are going through some of that struggle for freedom right now, people in the Ukraine, um, certainly now in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, these all feel like stories that, that we can relate to. Well, let me take it to another level because one of the things that the Haggadah does really well is that at no place in the story do we talk about ourselves today as slaves. We talk about ourselves as people free. We send, and the Seder saying, the Shana Haba'ab Yerushalayim. We begin in degradation, but we end in praise, in thanksgiving. That's a very important lesson that we end up seeing ourselves as free people. We see ourselves as if we were brought out of Egypt, not that we're in Egypt, but the idea is that we're brought out of Egypt, and so we're given this freedom. And I don't know that other cultures do this. I would think, you know, when we talk about the black experience in America, we talk about the suffering of the person of color, which is real and is something that we need to focus on. But there is a danger there, I would suggest, from a Jewish perspective, of seeing yourself as a victim and not as a free person. And I think the idea of seeing yourself as a free person and not a victim is a way of inspiring you to take action as opposed to just wallowing in, in the suffering. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, we do plenty of wallowing and complaining, um, Jews in general. But this is a story of triumph and a story of freedom, and it's central to who we are. We are you know, people who worked and fought and walked for our freedom and achieved it, and that is something that we can use to guide us forward and, and not only to maintain our own freedom and to continue to fight for freedom, and we're fighting for freedom now in Israel yet again, um, an internal struggle, uh, but also to spread freedom around the world. I want to take it one step further. I think that something we should be thinking about is inspiring and encouraging other peoples to write their own Haggadah. 
and to tell their story and to go forward in, in a different way, to create a ritual that doesn't just speak about the, the injustices done to them, but how one responds to those injustices. Well, as a person who writes stories, I certainly uh, support your idea that more of us should celebrate our own stories and, um, and by ritualizing them, by telling them over and over again and seeing how they apply to our lives today, we honor them even more and we continue to learn from them. That's why we need to tell stories over and over again. I think the power of the story, but how does the story end? Well, you know, the, the story ends, uh, you know, we're standing on the precipice of the land of Israel. It's this hopeful idea that we need to get to. And that's what I think inspired Jews to even leave, come out of the camps and kind of move to Israel and build a state. What is the call to me? What do I do with this freedom that I've ingested? How do I make the world better? And how do I see myself not as a victim, but as a free person who can actually act and embrace their own destiny. I think that ultimately is one of the great lessons of the Haggadah and something we should be thinking about. No doubt, the struggle continues. No question. Well, I wish you and your family a happy Passover. Thanks, Rabbi.